I was going to skip this chapter and then um, I reread it and so I figured it would be a good idea to still do it. Um, the third chapter is the discipline of the senses, um, where most of us don't have the discipline. <laughs> um, so as we said, we're going to continue using Abuna Athanasius' book as the, as the foundation. So we talked so far about what is the point of spiritual life, right? We talked about um, what is the point, like what are we doing, what does it even mean? We talked about discipleship, and then we talked about discipline of um, the mind, and then discipline of the will, and so now we're talking about discipline of the, of the senses. So when it starts off by quoting uh, Saint Theophan the Recluse, right, a Russian um, saint who was a bishop and then recluse um, to the monastery. So Theophan compares men or humans to a king, right, and the king is supposed to be an image of the soul who lives in a castle, right. So it's the spirit that's living inside of a body. The castle is the body. And the castle has five windows um, and a door. So the five windows are the five senses. Um, the door is the mind. So the enemy can enter into the castle only by the entrances, right? Without an entrance, um, the enemy can't get in, right? So these, these doors are the senses. The doors are basically the gateways of interaction with the rest of the world. So if these doors are closed, if they're closed shut, then the enemy can't enter. But if I open my door, um, then I'm going to have a problem. So windows basically are the entry point for the sales pitch, right? If we're looking at the, the devil as the, as the enemy or as a salesman, the windows are, are where the, the devil can interact with us. Um, so these are the interfaces in which we interact not just with the devil, but also with other people. Um, and there are windows because the senses are not intrinsically bad. Right? Because you can say, well, why not just build a castle with no windows? And it's because they're, it's not bad. It's not bad to have interaction with the world. It's not bad to have senses. Um, it's just a matter of what do I do with them. So the issue is when we, instead of rejecting garbage being put in through these interactions, we want the garbage instead of the good stuff. Right? So sometimes something will be sold to me that's actually a good thing. It's something that I need. But the problem is when I want the bad and not um, the good. So we invert the true meaning of something into a lie. We want comfort and pleasure instead of God and His kingdom. So basically we acquire knowledge of sin through the senses. It taints our purity. And this knowledge often leads to plotting and planning sins. Because once you know about it, tasted it, and liked it, um, now you can, you can set yourself up, right? You, you've tasted it, you liked it, and now, now that you know about it, you know how to go about trying to get it. Um, this is true not just of different temptations, but of our addictions. This is basically the beginning, the knowledge of sin is the beginning of lust, right? Of desiring something, not just a sexual thing, but anything. Of having an unholy desire. Um, and lust is what brings forth death, right? Like St. James says, when lust has conceived, right, it brings forth sin. So it starts off my, by my wanting it. Um, then once I've wanted it, it's given birth or it's conceived. It brings forth sin, and then sin, when it is finished, basically when it's come to labor, um, it brings forth death, right? I've used the machine in the wrong way. I've done something wrong to my house. Um, and then, as Abuna quotes, now the saying of Jeremiah becomes fulfilled. Death is come up into our windows, right? Now we brought death all the way to our, the doors of our castle. 
um, and is entered into our palaces. That is, death has entered through the senses into the soul. They become my entrance of sin. So as usual, we're going to try to look at the good use of a sense versus a bad use. So we'll break it up into senses. So the first thing is the eyes, right? And the eyes are a big deal. We're going to spend a lot of time on the eyes. Um, <clears throat> because the eyes, I mean, all the senses in a way are what we're using to see, like the world, uh, metaphorically. But the eyes are the one that we most think of in terms of the entry points of, of knowledge. It's what I've seen that enters the mind right away more than other things. So there's many verses in the Bible that warn and exhort us to discipline um, our eyes, right? Our Lord says, the light of the body is the eye, like we quoted in the first two lectures a lot. If the eye is pure, the whole body will be full of light. But if the eye is evil, right, if I see things in the wrong way, the whole body will be full of darkness. Um, our Lord also said, if your right eye offend you, pluck it out um, and cast it away from you. For it is profitable for you that it is not profitable for you to keep your your organ, right, and then be thrown in eternal fire. Um, or even further, he said, whoever looks on a woman to lust after has committed adultery with her already in his heart, right? So he's saying that just the, the eyes going there leads the mind immediately to a certain place, and it's like the sin has um, already occurred. So control of the eyes used to be a pretty easy command because the whole world was, was PG. Um, people dressed... <laughs> moderately, right? Um, both men and women. Um, movies used to avoid having any sexual scenes. Um, strict rules were in place. I was told even that in the old like American movies, there was like a rule that if they ever went into the bedroom, there had to be one person sitting on the bed and he had to have his foot on the ground to make it clear like nothing is going to happen. Um, or they would have two beds, like just to give an image of purity. Um, I know that in Egypt, um, when I was youth and I'd go, we'd always watch the films that were cut. Right, so they would have all of the the scenes that were even remotely suggestive, um, were were removed, um, and so people retained an, an innocence. I remember even this might be inappropriate to say, but there was a movie that was actually about a gay couple, and my cousins had no clue. Um, they just thought they were good friends because again, the mind was very innocent because they were protected from from knowledge. Right, they didn't know about certain things. They didn't even that they couldn't even recognize things that us who have knowledge of different things would pick up on and identify right away. Um, in public, there wasn't much display of affection, right? Maximum maybe like holding of hands. Uh, porn wasn't readily accessible, whereas today it's everywhere, right? Magazines, billboards, internet ads, the beach. Um, people are, are dressed very differently than they used to, right? Lingerie ads are everywhere. Um, Nothing is hidden anymore, right? Everything is, is in the open, whether sexual or non-sexual. Just everything everybody knows and sees. There's nothing that's considered sacred or quiet or personal or private anymore, right? People are, are parading everything about themselves everywhere, which isn't helping us. Um, and so because no one's trying to hide their sin anymore, everything is publicly seen, again, the eyes. Um, and becomes a source of knowledge to others. If I don't know about something, I'm less likely to do it, right? I need to have the knowledge of that thing to consider um, doing it. And to add insult to injury, now there's an attitude of, um, well, this is who I am, right? Like it's the, it's the default like cliche line um, that everybody spews out of, well, this is, this is just who I am. Um, irrespective of whether it is right or wrong, um, 
and so everyone does in the open and, and wants everyone to accept. TV is not just sexual, but it is violent. Um, you see things that you shouldn't see. You shouldn't be desensitized to it. Um, same of the internet or YouTube or whatever your source is now of shows. It's not really TV as much anymore. Um, I was disturbed recently to find out, I was listening to a podcast, that um, a really famous international murder like that happening in Canada, um, where a guy murdered a, um, a Chinese exchange student, um, it was broadcast on the internet after he had done it. Um, and it was watched by many people, like the whole thing. Um, and even more disturbing to me was that, that people have a fetish or have a desire for what they call apparently snuff films, right? Of people dying. So sometimes it's acting. In this case, it was real. That was why they even watched it. They were on a website for movies about killing people um, and found it. This is very disturbing. Like it shows the level of depravity um, that we have reached. And to even watch a snuff film, period, as entertainment, right, is disturbing. Of saying that it's it's that I can derive pleasure out of watching somebody being killed um, is a disturbing thought. So obviously whatever goes in, right, is going to affect me, right? It's going to affect my thoughts, my behaviors, my actions, my interactions. Everything is going to be affected by what I see. So in trying to wean the eyes from the depraved scenes it's become accustomed to, Abuna says, it is good to reflect on the Bible tells us. Um, he uses the example from Genesis that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, basically that they were pretty, and they took them wives of all which they chose. The results were disastrous, for we are then told in Genesis 6, the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. So one is making the point here that looking and lusting after women led to the destruction of humanity, right? Like that the, the eyes straying is a big deal. Personally, I prefer a different example um, from Genesis. I mean, that's a, a real example. But to me, I think to understand the warfare, it's better to go to Genesis 3, right? The first temptation. Because... It says that the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature. And he said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree of the trees of the garden, the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said not to eat of that tree, um, and not to touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he starts off with his sales pitch, by starting with a fact, like we said in other places, distorting it a little bit, right? Reinterpreting what God's position really is, reinterpreting the meaning of what it is. But there's the important part right now. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, right? And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So this, to me, shows it very clearly, right? The interaction here was an interaction between the mind and the eye, right? You have these thoughts, you look at it, and you're like, well, that looks good, right? Um, so the door to the pitch, the devil's pitch here, was the eyes. The eye saw that the tree was good for food, information was received, right? I now heard this stuff. I'm looking at this tree. It looks good. The devil, as usual, um, wanted to take something good and pure and corrupt it. So he sold her an object to mean something different than its actual meaning. That's how the sales pitch works for sin, right? Is to take something and give it a new twist, right? 
like when when people want to justify fornication, it's like, why are you trying to prevent me from loving someone, right? They try and make it sound like like you're you're a hater, right? Like you're a horrible person because you're preventing someone from expressing um, love. Um, he took a thing and made it not out of obedience, but he made it a thing of jealousy, right? So something that God was using to protect, he gave it a new meaning. He said it's jealousy, right? He's worried that you're going to know stuff like him, completely distorted it. Um, he made an object no longer just even about food, right? So now it wasn't even like, oh, take this so you can be full, right? This one's going to help you be full. It was beyond that, right? He distorted it so much that it wasn't even about food anymore. Um, it was about knowledge, Right? It was like, let's take this even further. So in all the senses, not just the eyes, this is usually what we see actually in confession dialogue. When you ask someone, okay, well, why did you do something? They usually have all sorts of justifications for why they, they sinned. Um, and these excuses are usually ridiculous, right? But um, to the person in the time of temptation, it doesn't seem ridiculous at all, right? Like in the, in the moment of this warfare, it doesn't at all seem ridiculous. It's very compelling, right? I'm sure if Adam and Eve, instead of grabbing the fruit right away and saying, yeah, 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 good idea, if they sat and had a discussion, they might be able to say, okay, well, it's kind of ridiculous that they would suggest that God is going to be jealous of me if he gave me this ability to begin with, right? If he gave me a rational mind, then why is he so worried about me having a rational mind? So obviously he's not afraid of me having a brain, okay? So then there must be a reason why he didn't. Right? They might, that might have made them take the next step and ask God, right? They were talking to every day, why am I not allowed to have the tree? And maybe God would have had that discussion with them, right? So it was a ridiculous thought, but in the moment, it doesn't because they're excited because of whatever reason. Um, so the sales pitch starts when you know about something, and this knowledge is what brought down all of humanity, right? The eye is not just about seeing things physically, it's also about knowing things. Right? When God said, make yourselves like children, children have a purity. Right? They haven't been tainted with knowledge, for good or for bad. Right? There is such thing as good knowledge. But if you talk to a kid about malice, they have no clue what you're talking about. Right? If you talk to a kid who is fighting with somebody else, you can find the same two kids that were fighting an hour later playing together. Right? They, they forgot what it was that, that they were supposed to be angry about. Right? They learn malice. They learn anger. Right? They watch it. They see it in us adults. Right? And then they, they imitate it. So we become teachers of bad. Just knowing something makes me able to do that thing. Right? A lot of the spiritual, mostly Roman Catholic philosophers talked about this. Right? If you couldn't, if you don't know about something, you can't imagine it. They even use it as a proof for the existence of God. Right? How could I imagine something that could not exist? Right? I can't have an idea, for example, of, uh, of a balloon. <laughs> if I haven't seen something like a balloon before, right? I can't have a concept of a building if I haven't seen a building, right? I have to have a certain knowledge about something before I can even imagine it, right? I have to be able to know it. So knowledge is a big deal, especially through the eyes. So we see many examples of this. King David, his eyes wandering, led him to murder, right? It led him not only to adultery, but to murder. And it's important to note that David, when he fell, King David, when he fell, was king. Why does that matter? Because kings were anointed, right? That meant they received the spirit. David falling today is like a bishop falling today. It wasn't just some guy um, who happened to be king. It was somebody who was ordained by God and received the gifts of the spirit, right? And not just this, David wasn't somewhere in his life where he didn't know God very well. 
right? Like sometimes there's an excuse of like, oh, I'm just growing my spiritual life. Well, David had made it really far in his spiritual life. He had so many interactions with him. He had had prophecies. He had had miracles. He had escapes, right? He had all sorts of amazing um, things with God. He wrote a whole lot of poetry about it, right? And then yet in spite of this, because he didn't discipline his senses, right? He allowed the salesman to work through the door. He became so infatuated with what he saw that he stopped at nothing until he got it. Violence, right? Watching violence makes people more angry and agitated and more likely to behave in an aggressive way, right? I have to protect my eyes. Um, in the verses leading up to the flood, for example, um, it's specifically violence that our Lord mentions, right? In Genesis 6, after the part that Abuna had quoted, was the part where it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way. And God said, I've determined to make an end, etc. Um, so watching violence should be no, right? That should not be acceptable to us. We shouldn't be okay with desensitizing ourselves to this, nor should we be okay with our kids desensitizing us to this, right? There's a game that I, I can't remember what it's called, Call of Duty, um, where like it's just like really graphic violence. Right, and you can have different modes, right, where you can just keep killing and killing and killing, and there's and there's blood everywhere, and this is something that a lot of people play. It's not like a, like people have lineups um, for this game whenever they release the new ones. Um, I was told that even the army sometimes uses it to help desensitize their soldiers, um, so that it's easier for them when they go to war. Right, is that they get used to this concept, so they're using it because it works, right, because it becomes more acceptable to somebody. So we have to protect our eyes from seeing things that are contrary to our proper knowledge, contrary to how things ought to be. Um, instead of images of food or cars or houses or furniture or clothes or computers or toys, right, or possessions, things we don't have, um, things better than what we have, etc., um, we need to be careful to not look at these things, right? This is what the devil did with Christ himself, right? The Lord Jesus was tempted this way when, when the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, right? And the glory of them. And he said, I'll give you all of these things if you fall down and worship me. So this is the sales pitch, right? So he'll find whatever it is he thinks that you're going to like and he'll sell it to you, right? Only one thing, just give yourself to me. So the devil is still using the same trick trying to attempt us to cover earthly things, right? So our Lord responded to him with the devil, with the, with the Bible, sorry. Um, the Lord responded um, saying, if any man, well, he didn't say this, but this is our response to it. If any man loved the world, the love of God is not in him, right? God answered him and said, man, not live by bread alone, right? Um, and he said, you will not tempt the Lord your God. He gave responses. Um, but we read this every single week do not love the world and the things that are in the world, the world shall pass away and all its desires, right? And we all just, like, take that as our pitch to be like, right? Like, we don't even think about the words. Um, and St. John is more explicit when he says, friendship, the world is emmy with God, okay? There is no um, two ways about it. That's actually one of the things the gospel is about tomorrow. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So if you think this is extremist, then I would ask, why do you think people are advertising using images, right? There's a reason why they advertise putting a picture of something. It's because it works, <laughs> right? Why do you think they place certain items by the cash register? 
because you're more likely to buy it, right? Do you know, I don't know if you guys know this, how much people pay for prime spots for where they put their advertisements or where they even put their items in a store, right? I, I was worked at Walmart in the past, right? Where there's certain, if you have an end shelf, that's big money because when people pass by, they're going to see it. And so people pay and they'll send reps to the store to make sure that you actually put it where you said you were because studies have shown that people are more likely to buy it, right? People's eyes, when they see things, make them want it. Right? Even if you don't need it, you look like, oh, I could use that. Oh, I could have that. Right? Because now the knowledge has entered. People didn't know that they needed a remote control key finder right? until they were down the aisle and like, oh, there's a key finder. Right? Before that, I just had to pay attention. Right? But we're looking for different things. Um, so the devil did it with our Lord. He'll do it to you. Looking causes envy. Okay, if you don't control your eyes, you will be envious and jealous. That couple is more happy than me and my significant other. That person is more successful than me. That person has a bigger house than me. That person has better kids than me. That person has better parents than me. That person has a better this, that, or the other thing. We sit there and we look at all those things. Or even, I don't have that, right? Forget whether it's better or not. It's, I don't even have that. How do I have that? I want that, right? Being the opposite of um, contentment. And yet, one of the commandments is not to covet, right? One of the greatest, one of the ten, the big ones, right, is you will not covet. Um, and as Job says, envy slays the silly one, right? The frivolous one, right? A person who is frivolous will be slain by envy because they'll be petty. They'll want certain things. Um, so don't be fixated on what other people have. Okay, the Lord knows what you actually need, and He cares about it. Your want of excess is not holy, right? Being overly excessive is not right. But what you do need, He also knows, right? So look at the, the, the train of thought that our Lord uses, even just to demonstrate this point. He starts off by saying, the eye, right? The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is sound, your body is full of light. But if your eye is not sound, your whole body will be full of darkness. We read this earlier. But in this same passage, right? Just two verses later, he goes on to say, Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious, right? Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing, right? Instead, use the sense, like he's saying, look, okay, use your eyes again, but instead, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they, right? Then he goes on to say, your Father in heaven, if God clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown, will He not much more clothe you, O your little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Right? He's aware that you need to eat and drink and have shelter. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added. Right? So He already knows. So the proper use of the eye. Um, there's that story we talked about in the first week of the monk who went to Alexandria, right? Um, who went, and when he went through, um, actually this is a different one. They asked him, so when he came back to the monastery, like, so what was Alexandria like? So some of these monks didn't get to see the big city. And he answered that he had no idea, right? Because I didn't really have an occasion to look at things. Like, well, what do you mean you went to Alexandria? He said, I went to do business, and I didn't have any wish to do any sightseeing, 
right? I, I didn't want this knowledge. That's not why I was going, right? That was going to become a warfare to him. So instead, he just went, did his thing, and went home. He didn't spend time on other things. We can do this both physically and figuratively, right? If I am having a conversation with somebody, am I talking to try and find something out about them, or am I actually talking about the thing that I'm talking about by sticking to the goal? Um, the other story that we talked was about that the monk who saw the naked woman and was completely not perturbed by it, right? And he was like, oh, no, I just thought it was the beauty of God, right? He took something and took it back to God. He made it about God. I know we're not all there, um, but as a concept, it's, it's a good concept. Um, so spiritualize things, right? If you see a beautiful home, think even more about how beautiful the home would be in heaven, right? If you see something that you think is beautiful, think even more great is the artist who designed it, which is God, right? Spiritualize everything that you see. There's a story of a monk that I used to hate when I was a kid, um, but today I really like, because um, there's a story of this monk, and it said it was said of Abba so-and-so that he never even knew what the ceiling looked like. And I would get very irritated. I'm like, what was wrong with the ceiling? <laughs> why, why is he against ceilings? Um, but the concept, which I didn't understand as a kid, was not that something was wrong with the ceiling, right? It was not to say, oh, you shouldn't look at things including the ceiling, right? The concept was he knew his weakness was this door, right? He knew that looking at things was his weakness. So he kept his head down. He didn't allow himself, he had discipline, not to look in any direction unnecessarily to prevent himself from seeing something. Right? This is a very bold thing, actually. It's a very impressive thing. Right? So we can take that and use that. Right? If people are at the gym, keep your head down. Right? There will be lots of sights to see. If you're driving, if you're in the subway, or if you're in a bus, and you know that the billboards have things, don't stare at the wrong things. If somebody is attractive that passes by, instead of staring at them to get as much gratification as you can, put your head down. Right? We need to learn how to use the senses properly. Um, the next thing was the ears. Um, there are holy and holy ways to use the ears. Um, the most obvious one to me, maybe just because I'm into music, is, is music. Um, there are songs with bad lyrics, and there are songs with bad music, like both. Music is an expression of something, right? So it's meant to make you think or feel a certain thing, because it's an art, right? And art is an expression of somebody. They're actually trying to tell you something, so it's not us over-reading into it to say, that it might make you feel this way is very intentional. They do want you to feel in a certain way. That's why there are genres of music. There's dance music and classical music and hip hop, right? They want you to feel and think a certain thing. Um, some speculate actually that the devil was in charge of music in heaven, right? So it shows that music is not wrong. It was up in heaven, okay? But it also um, is not surprising why he didn't. And they use one of the manuscripts that they use in, tr in translating the Bible in the King James and the New King James in Ezekiel. Um, says, the workmanship of thy tablets and your pipes was prepared for you in the day when you were created. Um, that, that he had been responsible for it. And the Septuagint is actually different words and it's nothing to do with music, so I don't know. Um, either way, music is something that the devil likes to take advantage of, regardless of whether he was in charge of it or not. Um, and we've seen that in history. Arius used music, right? He was like, there was a time when the sun was not, and I'm sure it probably rhymed in the original language. Um, but people were singing it. He actually put it to song first, right? It was his way of getting people to do it. So think of the 60s or 70s with John Lennon and Imagine, right? He's got a very clear message. Um, imagine there's no heaven, no hell, no religion, right? Just to get everybody to sing it, and it, and it warms your heart, and it's one of the, the, the biggest hits of all time, right? Rock and roll, 
which is not intrinsically evil, okay, but there were definitely rock and roll artists that had an agenda of anti-Christianity. Um, um, there's a lot of modern songs that I was picking out when I was doing the youth convention. Um, one of Lecrae's songs, Believe in God but Don't Believe in Dogma, and he says it in a really like catchy way um, that makes you repeat it. Take me to church. Even just saying the title of it gets it stuck in my head. Like it's a very catchy tune. Um, and that's not an accident, right? It's, it's saying all over the place. Um, or Same Love by Malcolm Moore. Um, a specific agenda is being promoted, right? The artist has a message, has an agenda, and he or she wants to do it. And messages stick, um, and so do the tunes, right? And so you find yourself repeating things that are wrong um, in an emotional state to match what you want, and you're like, yeah, why? Because that person created it in that emotion, right? So when you're having that emotion, you're going to relate. But there hasn't been a step back to say, well, is this the right thing um, or not? So music is a big deal. Um, so is listening to wrong content, um, like sermons, from those who have a different belief than us. Um, and I'm not saying it to hate on other denominations, but if I don't know the difference between truth and error, well, then listening to error is actually a dangerous thing for me, right? And it's going to affect my behavior um, and my theology, and that can be um, a problem, right? Like the whole like left behind thing, right? Or the, this concept of the rapture. If I believe in the rapture, I'm going to have a real problem when the Antichrist comes, right? Because if I think that I'm saved and that this can't be because I would have raptured by now, right? Then I'm going to be duped, right? It might sound trivial, but it's a big deal. But even more than that, if I don't know sound doctrine from false doctrine, well then how will I identify the Antichrist when he's there? Or different Antichrists, right? Wrong theories and wrong beliefs about um, uh, Christ or religion. So if you mix fact with fiction, you will never be able to discern the two, right? So you have to protect your ears from wrong, wrong things. If you're with people who cuss all the time, you're more likely to cuss, right? Whatever you're hearing all the time is going to affect what you um, say and do. Listening to gossip or to anything unprofitable is a horrible use of your ears, right? It makes you judge. It might make you participate in lying. It makes you think about behaviors of people in a different way. It makes you evaluate intentions. It makes you take action against people, okay? The ears are much more dangerous than we give them credit for. Um, and the desire to know the affairs of others is equated by St. James with murder and stealing, right? St. James says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters, right? And right in the same area. So we have to be extremely um, careful. I've done this, right? There's a priest who I heard was great, and then in my mind, I was like, okay, he was great, but you know what? I heard that he was duped by this man who was corrupt, um, by this other priest, and in my mind, I'm like, it just makes me not sure if I can trust his judgment, right? And this person had already reposed in the Lord, right? I found out, to make a long story short, eventually, A, that the bad man wasn't bad, right? So I participated in listening by judging the bad man as bad, and he wasn't, right? And so this other priest that I thought was duped wasn't duped. In fact, he had the greater discernment than me, right? And so my listening to something caused me to judge, caused me to deal differently with somebody, even if it was in my mind, and I was wrong, right? We have to be very careful um, of what we do. I shouldn't listen to other people telling me what people say behind my back, 
right? If someone comes to me like, oh, did you know that he or she said this or this or this or this? I shouldn't want to know, right? And if you desire truth and you want to be rectified, just say, if you like to talk to me about this, if you're actually concerned, maybe it would be better to bring that person and have the conversation altogether, right? That might make the person feel uncomfortable, but that's good because they should be uncomfortable, right? We shouldn't be constantly spreading things that people say, right? I shouldn't have a toleration for gossip or lying or for just nonsense words that don't, that don't profit me anything. Um, listening to vain and empty talk is a big deal. That's why Christ said, every idle word that men shall speak, you will give account of in the day um, of judgment, right? There's a famous story of a monk who was sitting with a bunch of other monks and they, they were talking a lot. And so he got up and left and when he went back to his cell, he just started circling his cell. And so the other monk said, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you doing laps around your cell? And he said, I'm trying to get rid of all these empty thoughts before I go in. I don't, all this stuff that we talked about, I don't, I don't want them in my cell, right? He wanted to protect himself um, from what it was. I know a modern monk who's still alive, who um, sometimes his partner in crime, a, a fellow monk of his, when they were newly ordained, they wanted to sit together to eat or drink. And the talk was useless. And so Abuna would, would I don't want to say pretend because it sounds deceptive, um, that he was not in his cell. And by that I mean he just wouldn't answer. They would yell at the door and be like, yeah, Abuna is so and so. And he wouldn't answer. And so, and the person who told me this, he's now reposing the Lord, was his, his fellow monk. Um, and he was like, you're driving me crazy. And he goes, but I knew why he was doing it. He didn't want to sit with us because he knew what the talk was about. Um, he had choice words about it, but it was, the message was clear. Um, and one very difficult offense to get rid of, says Abuna, is listening to flattery. Um, we all like it when people say good things about us, right? But we forget what the Lord says, beware when all men speak well of you. Um, flatter will be one of the most potent weapons that the Antichrist will use to deceive people. And the devil uses it all the time with us, right? Um, he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries, is what Daniel says with the Antichrist. But that's how the devil in general works. You're so great. You're, like He'll use whatever it is that will work. People don't appreciate how smart you are, how spiritual you are, right? One time I was talking to Abuna Thanasius who wrote this book about vainglory and about pride and arrogance. And he said to me, he goes, do you know what I say when someone comes up to me after a sermon and says, Abuna, that was a great sermon. And so I said, what? And I was expecting this profound um, statement from Abuna. And he goes, I say, thank you. And so I started laughing, thinking <laughs> that's not that impressive. And he said, why? Right? And he goes, because if I start answering back, I'm encouraging them to say more. No, 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 it was God's word. And like, no, Abuna, that was amazing. No, 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 no. You liked it, and it was God's, right? And you're just feeding it and feeding it and feeding it, right? Whereas thank you might even make them think he's arrogant, right? Because he just said thank you like it was something big. But what does he say? He said, but internally, I look up to God and I say, Lord, you know who I am, right? The, the, the battle is internal, so as not to cause the people to talk, right? To say things and to go further, to indulge the flattery further, right? And that's why Abuna, of all people, really taught me to be very sensitive to flattery, right? Abuna used to say <laughs> that he's allergic to flattery. <laughs> um, I hope I can be like him one day before I die. Um, the tongue. Um, food, okay? 
a taste for fine things and specific things or eating too much, right? And it's not about specifically food being wrong. Food is not wrong, right? Thankfully, we're in a fasting period right now. Um, in Amos, Amos, the prophet says, Woe unto them who lie upon the bed of ivory, stretch themselves upon their couches, and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall. So it's not about the food itself being wrong. It's this lifestyle of sumptuousness, right? This lifestyle of having excess, of being laid back and just eating whenever you feel like it. Um, actually, in a very real way, North America has seen a real problem with food, right? The excess of rich food and nutrient-rich food has made puberty go from like 17, 18, 19 years old down to like 9, 10, 11 years old. Right? And what is the consequence? Our kids are struggling with purity way earlier. Right? Our kids are struggling with, with thoughts that they don't know how to deal with yet earlier. So the food has had a direct link to real warfare. Right? So we have to be careful what we do with, um, with food. Even eating a feast here and there is not wrong. Right? It's about what is, my, what is my lifestyle like? Lavishness or moderation? And the key is to learn contentment. The tongue can be used to swear, to lie, to gossip, to take the Lord's name in vain, cussing, foul, and vulgar talk, right? And this is why St. Paul says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, right? A Christian ought to have a proper use of his or her tongue. Um, so idle speech and gossip we talked about, um, and the Proverbs especially, a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. Right? Someone who talks too much, you know something's um, wrong. He that has knowledge spares his words. But the most scary warning about talking too much is from Christ. Right? But I say unto you, every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Right? This is why it is better. There's a Protestant song that I really like called Let My Words Be Few. <laughs> right? I, it, would be, it would be good for us to, to have that as a philosophy. Excessive speech means either a great deal of pride or a great deal of emptiness, right? If you look at anybody holy that you know, most of them as they grew, decreased their speech, right? The more that they grew, they found they had less to say. Um, they would only grow in speech about holy things, about things that pertain to God. Um, and even there, they were cautious, right? Or they might talk as a gift to someone to put them at ease, but they'll, they'll talk with purpose, right? It will no longer be a random talk. Whether it's about God or not about God, they don't talk randomly, right? That's why there's a famous saying of St. Arsenius, where he says, many times I spoke and I regretted, but never have I regretted um, silence. And when we talk so much, things become cheap, right? Um, imagine if someone tells you the same memory, memory every single day, it eventually gets annoying, right? And it's no longer a nice memory that you shared. It's like, right? Like, are you going to keep telling me this over and over and over? Um, it, and it loses its, its richness. It loses its intimacy, right? It became a casual thing. It lost its sacredness. Um, the words, I love you, for example, are used so much now, right? Like, everybody just says it all the time that now I'm not sure if I love you means I love you or if it means I like you right or I have affection towards you like it's it's lost its meaning right everyone's saying you'll meet somebody for the very 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 first time and they go I love you and it's like how you just met me 
You don't know anything about me. You haven't denied anything for me, nor I for you. You might like me, that's nice, I like you too, right? But that doesn't mean that there's love. But we, when we use it excessively, right, it loses um, its meaning. We have to be careful of this. Um, so the first step to combat this is to realize that it's a sin, okay? To talk too much, to say too much. Um, to ground in your mind the verse from Matthew 12 that we said about idle words. Then to exercise yourself in silence, right? So one of the desert fathers put a rock in his mouth um, to prevent himself from speaking. And so Buna suggests putting something like um, a button uh, in your mouth. And I can proudly say that the first person he tried it on was me. <laughs> so um, in this book. So I was the one he told <laughs> to put a button in my mouth <laughs> to stop talking. Um, and I did it. Um, I still talk too much. But um, it was... It was a good exercise, right? It was a physical reminder to say, don't talk unless you need to talk, right? Don't talk unless it's profitable. Because if it's in there, right, you have a, a reminder point to say, what am I about to say and why? Do I need to say all these things? Am I about to gossip? Am I about to judge? Am I about to slander? Right? We need find yourself a button um, to put in your, your, your mouth that might be more hygienic. Um, so is giving advice a sin? Because that's another thing. Yes, it is. Not always, but it can be. Giving advice when you're not asked is a sin. It's presumptuous. Giving advice when you're not qualified is a sin. You're leading somebody astray. Okay? You should not be randomly giving people your words of wisdom and your pearls of great price. Okay? If someone asks you for advice and you actually have the answer, okay. Like, you can help them out in a limited way. Um, if they didn't, don't do it. If you don't know, say, I don't know. Right? There's a famous saying um, from the stories of St. Anthony that there was an, uh, a monk named Abba Joseph who was with them. And they're reading the Bible together with St. Anthony and a bunch of monks, including him. And he began to ask each person, St. Anthony asked each person, what do you think this verse means? What do you think this verse means? They got to Abba Joseph. Everyone gave their opinion. Oh, I think it's probably this. In my opinion, you know, in this falsafa and philosophy of whatever they think. And Abba Joseph in the end just says, I don't know. And so St. Anthony says to him, in truth, Abba Joseph, you have found the way <laughs> and that you have said, I don't know, right? This was the wise thing to do. So offering advice about serious matters is a grave sin because you become responsible for the behavior of that person that you have advised. Um, of course, if someone's asking you about something trivial that you actually know about, okay, but you've got to be very careful. Right? What kind of knowledge are you giving them? From where did you get it from? Is it just your personal experience? And how valuable is that even? Right? We've got to be very careful. This is why in Orthodoxy we care about right praise, about right worship. Right? We believe in objectivity. Right? I conform myself to the mind of the fathers, not to my own, my own heart. Right? Because my heart could be mistaken. My conscience could be wrong. Um, If someone tells you that they're doing something, try and send them to a priest or to somebody who's qualified, right? Like, when I was serving in Canada, I would send them to a Buna, right? And I would work as a servant, as a bridge with a Buna. I didn't see myself as somebody who should be doing any of that. I took my mandate directly from a Buna about what is my scope and what is not, right? So I would go to one like a Buna, there's a youth coming to you, I think he might be a little bit worried to talk to you, he's worried you're going to get angry. Right? So I could like even like do some intercession. Not that everyone is gonna get angry, but it's like, okay, this kid is petrified of you, so and he smile, kid okay, like when he comes to see you, right? I could work as an intercessor. Why? Because who did I get my teachings from? It was him. <laughs> right? He was the one who was teaching me. 
So why not go to the source himself, right? In due time with discipleship, then God asked me to do the same, right? But even now as a priest, I will never offer unsolicited advice, right? I don't go up to random people like, hey, let me tell you how your life could be better. I don't do that, right? Because you don't give people advice if they don't ask you for advice. We don't just throw out um, random words. Even, even our Lord was careful in, in what he said, and he had the right to say whatever he wanted. Um, finally, with the tongue, be still and know that I am God. Right? You have to be still. You need to be quiet. If all you do is talk, you will never hear God. Period. Right? Because all you're hearing is yourself. Don't be quick to advise, to interpret, to give your two cents, to tell people why you know what you know. If you're not asked, or it's not your role, don't speak. Um, there's even that story that I, I told you guys either in a previous one of these or in, in a sermon um, about the elder who was assigned a new monk who wouldn't talk, right? And the young monk was so angry, he went back to the other elder and said, he doesn't teach me anything. Give me a new elder. So they went to the elder to rebuke him, saying, why don't you teach him? And he said, if he can't learn from my silence, how can he learn from my words, right? He was, he was living it. So you have to have time of silence, right? Um, you can't constantly be talking. You can't constantly be giving your opinion, not even just to others, to yourself. Just be quiet. Right? Meditate on the Word of God. Don't just make the Word of God mean what you want. That's still your voice. That's still your tongue. Right? Not God's. Um, even our Lord God, when He was incarnate, took retreats. Right? He didn't, he didn't say, well, I'm only here for 33 years. Alright, I better do all the talking I can do before I go. He didn't. Right? He showed us the importance of solitude, of quietness. So instead of giving lots of advice, pray for a person. Right? Turn it into prayer. Prayer is a real thing, right? We're not joking when we say to pray. Um, send them to people who are um, qualified. I still do this as a priest. There are people who come to talk about things I don't know about. So I'm saying, you know what? This isn't my expertise. Go to Bunakrullus. Go to Bunan so-and-so. Go to go Bunan so-and-so. These are their things I don't know, right? Because I know that they know. We need to be quiet. Um, uh, the last two, and I'll go quickly. I'm sorry that I took so long, everybody. Um, Smell will be quick with smell because I don't know enough about smell. Um, the sense of smell <laughs> can provoke lust, thoughts, and feelings. Actually, I do remember from sight class that the most strong um, sense to trigger memories and emotions is smell, right? And that I know. I know that when I opened my drawer and smelled um, some of the uh, blessing, objects of blessing, Hagat Barakani, from St. Anthony's, I smelled it and I immediately, like, was in another place, right? Because I could smell Egypt, I could smell the walls of the monastery, and it took me to a certain place, right? So smells have power over us um, of various kinds, right? So strong-smelling perfumes can produce lust, right? If I have things that, that remind me of someone else, right, that have it, that can be a, a source of um, temptations. Um, so if I encounter a situation where an odor brings in thoughts of something, right, then remember what Isaiah says. Isaiah says something, it shall come to pass that instead of the sweet smell, there shall, there shall be stink, <laughs> right, which is saying that everything dies. Right? So if my source of warfare is the smell, then think of the smell of death. Bring it back to something um, objective, which might sound morbid, but it's, it's helpful. 
Um, the smell of food, for example, can offend you when you're fasting, right? If there's all sorts of, of aromas coming out. So be careful. Um, uh, Amba Abraham, the Bishop of Fayyum, Abu gives this example, right? When he lusted after, I think it was hem, hens, um, he had it go like af and he had it decay and rot. Um, and then had it brought to him, right? To bring to himself that stink, that smell of saying, aha, uh -huh, take and eat of your desire, right? This thing that you lusted after, smell what it's like to decay, right? So that he could learn to have um, continence um, of things. And instead, if I smell something nice, like we said, spiritualize it, right? It wouldn't give us the advice of saying, um, think of the, the smell of the ointment that St. Mar Mary used when anointing the feet um, of Christ. The house was filled with the order of ointment. The last one is touch. Um, and he, Abuna talks about a story from the paradise about a young monk who was visited by his mom and he took her to the edge of the village and while going there he had to cross a shallow river and out of courtesy carried his mother across. And before doing so he wrapped her in a blanket he was carrying. His mother was surprised and told him, I'm your mother. Um, and the monk replied, I'm not afraid to touch your flesh, mother, but touching you will bring to my memory other flesh that I touched in my foolish days. Right? This is how much he was sensitive okay, to what touch could do to him. Right? So it wasn't by saying everything is wrong. Right? It was being aware of what touch can do to someone. Um, touch is, is so strong. Okay? Um, and touch is not just about touching other people, it's about what I do with my hands, right? What I do with my, my whole body. Um, it's taking the phone to text someone that I shouldn't, right? It's taking, interacting with an object and doing something with it. Um, it's like your magic wand, if you will, is a sense of, of touch. Touching our keyboards or our phones or the keys of the car that's going to take me somewhere that I shouldn't go. Um, and this is why St. Paul says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, right? You need to be serious in striving. Um, touching other people is a huge one in this society, like a really, really big one. Excessive hugs, right? Excessive kissing. Um, it leads to lust, and I'm not being silly here or extremist. It does. Um, uh, there, was, there was a study done that I found very interesting um, where if a waitress, before putting the bill down on the table, just touched the man's hand and said, thank you so much, have a great night, tips went through the roof, okay? Why? Because she touched him, right? Touching has an effect on people. Physiologically, it does. There's no way of denying that, right? I know that growing up, we didn't have this excessive huggy-huggy at, like, at church, right? I get it. I know it's become a cultural norm, um, but it's not necessarily healthy, right? And so there are proper ways to ex express affection, and there are proper people with whom to express affection, but we have to be careful, um, because even if something doesn't affect me, because someone say, well, I don't feel anything improper, right? That's usually the response. Um, well, what about the other person, right? What if you stir that person to an improper sense, right? That waitress might not have known what it did to that guy, right? But it did something, right? We need to be thinking not only about our own purity, but the purity of others. Um, and so this is why, for example, like, People know not to hug monks when they're at the monastery, right? And so there becomes a cultural class because culture has gotten more and more touchy, right? But we need to be very aware of these things, right? They need to be done in a proper context, in a proper way, 
um, because it can be very dangerous. People start to long for it, right? And it becomes a bigger warfare than people realize. Don't pander to yourself. Think before you touch, not just before you speak. Um, exercise the disciplines of the mind and the discipline of the will at the same time, right? These have to go all um, hand in hand. Physically keep away from yourself the things that harm you, right? If it's an email account, delete it, right? If it's a phone number, change it, right? This is why, why Christ said, <laughs> right, like if your eye offends, you cut it out. It's not just the eye. It's whatever this thing is that I want to touch. Um, if it's a job, leave it, right? Don't make sin readily, readily available to yourself. Um, there's a person I know who used to text someone in an, an op inappropriate way anonymously, Okay, he had set up an anonymous email account and he would message um, a girl that he really liked that he met online. So he was messaging her for years and he felt safe because she was far away from him, right? So he felt that he could just fool around and do stuff online and that kind of thing and that he was um, protected. Things started to escalate, okay, where more of his identity came out than he would have been comfortable having her have. Um, where this imaginary world was about to meet his real world. So he panicked, right? So he panicked, he stopped emailing, he cut it off, he changed his number, he did all of those things. But he saved her email in his email address book so that years later, as he was going through cleaning, he came across it. Suddenly, he had access, right? Suddenly the warfare became real again. He didn't cut off his hand, okay? So you have to be careful. What is the thing? What is my source of temptation? Do I cut it off, right? If there's a coworker that I'm having some kind of problem like containing myself with, right? I want to do everything in my power to resolve the issue if I can't. If it means leaving my job, then I should leave my job, right? Like it should mean that. Imagine if a, if a husband and spouse, one of them is working somewhere, right? And there's somebody who's constantly trying to win over the spouse for something sexual. Do you think the spouse is going to say, no, stay there because it's our source of money. They're going to say, I don't care for poor, go find somewhere else. Right? I'm not okay with you constantly being with that person who's doing these things. Right? We need to cut off the source of um, sins. If I suffer as a result of not touching, um, well then, as, saying, as Abuna quotes, um, a person with a well-trained sense of touch will learn how to accept pain. He'll even learn how to benefit from pain by remembering that the Lord endured pain for our sakes. Theophan the recluse gave some exercise in this regard. If I feel pain in my head, I should think of the nails that went into the Lord's hands. If my back hurts, I should meditate on the lashes the Lord endured on my behalf. If the pain is in my side, I should remember the spear. And if my head hurts, the crown of thorns should come to my mind. And I would add, if it's me mental anguish, then keep to mind the agony and pain that our Lord suffered in Gethsemane. And if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Any questions or comments? Sorry, as usual, for taking so long. It is. And I've been warned before not to spend too much time talking about somebody's good even, right? Because A, I increase their warfare, right? That's on the one hand. B, 
I'm exalting somebody who is a human, and that human can fall. And if that human falls and I've made him out to be this infallible hero, it hurts even more when that person falls, right? That's why actually in the Orthodox Church, we don't even do testimonials, right? Like a Protestant practice is like is, is for somebody to come and testify, right? Preach, brother, preach. When someone comes up and, and talks about um, how they were away and they came back and what God did in their lives. And a lot of these people are amazing people, right? Like I'm not actually discrediting that. The problem is that their story is incomplete, right? So what happens if that person who says, yeah, the Lord saved me, I don't do drugs anymore, I don't do this or that or the other thing, right? And then three or four years later, they relapse, right? Then now that person's good life has become an offense to people, right? If somebody, for example, when I, I deal a lot with atheists, right? Somebody who's come back to the church, I don't encourage them to come give the talk on atheism and to tell people, hey, I was an atheist, I'm not anymore. Like, if they're going to give a talk, I, I don't encourage them, um, especially at the beginning, to say much about their own struggles right away because they're prone to have relapses, right? And so it can be an offense. That is why the church adorns herself, right, with those victorious already, right? We prefer to talk um, about people who have already finished um, and accomplished because they can't mess up yet th uh, anymore, right? So that, that's the thing. So it's not entirely wrong. It just has to be done again in, in wisdom and moderation um, and very little. There's, it's good to have an encouraging word here and there. And sometimes our own experience does help people. So I'm not saying never do it, but it just has to be practiced, like St. Anthony said, neither too much to the right nor too much to the left. A very good question, though. Any other questions? Okay. Fadbalo, we'll do Tazbaha, I'll take confessions before I head out at the back. Glory be to God forever. Amen.